You're listening to the Salty Sex Cast with Pamela and Mariah. Yeah, and what's puberty? The sex education you wish you had in high school. Maybe a diagram will help. Hello. Hello. Hi, Mariah. Hello, Pamela. I am so happy to be here with you today. Thanks, me too. Yeah, I'm very excited to see you. I've been in Disneyland this week. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I actually am not a huge Disney fan, but I'm jealous that you were in like a warmer climate. It was so warm. The weather was so nice. Oh, yeah, because we are recording from Utah, if anyone did not get that memo. Um, And it's been warming up slowly, but I am jealous that you did go to California because of... I'm a California girl. Yeah. And I love the weather there. Yeah. It, it was really nice. The weather. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I'm Pamela and I co-own Silk and Salt Photography, which is a boudoir photography studio here in Utah. And I'm Mariah and I own Balance Your Wellness, which is a health consultancy business. And... Um, One of the biggest reasons we started this podcast is we wanted to give ourselves a platform not only to share some of the information that we've both come across and um, some of our own life experiences, but also to give other folks a platform to, you know, share some of their experiences. Um, And, you know, when we're talking about some of these really intimate things, it can be hard and there's a lot of strong feelings and biases. Biases? Yes. Um, And so, I don't know. I would just like to ask our listeners um, for this episode to please listen to the end um, and go in with as open a mind as you can because I understand that there are a lot of of people who have preconceived notions about the thing that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And um, that's the purpose of this episode is to help us... Um, develop more compassion and hopefully change the system for the better um, and be a part of that. Yeah. And maybe, you know, look behind a closed door that no one else has ever considered looking behind or, um, you know, before their judgments close any opportunity to learn and to grow from someone else's experience. Um, So today our guest, we have um mike here you want to go ahead and say hi hello hi thanks for being mm-hmm. here um Thank you. yeah so mike is a registered sex offender um he served was it three and a half years, three and a half years yeah. in in prison um for a sexual offense and um he's here today to to talk to us about his experience with that and we're not going to get too deeply into his his own personal story but he would just like to share with us um about kind of what he's observed going through the system um and kind of the the ramifications that it has on society as a whole so does that sound about right yeah okay great okay um yeah so how do you want to start what yeah, would you like to question. say I'm really to us? Thinking about that myself. That's fine. And I think it actually may be um, helpful to go into some backstory because um, as anyone that has gone through my experience, um, you do a lot of therapy. You talk to a lot of people. You have plenty of time in prison to reflect upon your life, um, mm. and especially around the topic of sexuality, um, you really get to look back and see like where your foundation came from. Um, yeah. you know, have come to believe that um, we're both a product of nature and nurture. You know, there's components that are playing in our lives of what we've been exposed to, how we were exposed to them, at what age we were exposed to them. Yeah. And from that foundation, that's typically where we build on the rest of our lives, our our fantasies, our desires, our attractions, um, you know, and certain yeah. things like that, I think are really key to hopefully bring about what it is we want to to really talk about today, and that's um, to bring an awareness around uh, sexuality in, in this very different type of way that most people don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, so it may be beneficial to kind of go back into what I've discovered about my own personal journey, which mm-hmm. starts back when I was a child. 
Um, I was raised in a very Mormon family, uh, 12 kids. Um, I think that in itself plays a great part. You know, when you're uh, a part of a mixed family, you don't have a whole lot of um, social interaction outside of your family at first. Um, yeah. I was raised on a farm, which I think also has a, an interesting component of being around a lot of animals and their breeding and you know, you, you watch and observe them, and especially in the light of religion, where they put sex and procreation as, like, the only thing that you're supposed to be doing with that. And you're not supposed to, to think about it and entertain those thoughts, and yet you see it all around you with the animals that are, you know, doing their thing. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I was young... Um, I think I was first introduced to sexuality through an older female. Um, not quite sure what was happening there. Um, and at the same time, wondering, you know, what this was. I was uh, a person that I cared for. You know, I didn't feel abused. I didn't feel wounded. I didn't feel um, like anything was happening there. I was too young to really have a lot of guilt or shame around it. Okay. Um, which I think is an important piece that I'll kind of bring in later. Um, and so, uh, this was when I was about six and, um, later in my life, uh, got exposed more to, to sexuality through a clubhouse <laughs> and older boys, um, that were kind of experimenting in their own way. Um, um, some older lady had given them a whole treasure trove of penthouses and playboys and it was like kind of their secret little hideout and um, when me and my brother got you know uh, kind of initiated into this club we found out that that this was a thing that these other boys were doing and also included you know like masturbating and then sexual favors and just different things and this was when i was probably about seven um and now looking back like not really realizing like oh like i remember those feelings of feeling like this is weird and these images of women like ooh, that's what women look like this is what their <laughs> parts look like this is so <laughs> alien and so odd and at the same time like when you're that young like um you're only told what to feel guilty about and so there wasn't a lot of that there you know when you don't recognize that yeah you yeah. haven't built that feeling of guilt at all yeah. so yeah. when someone else tells you right i mean well right shame is learned right 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 mm -hmm. so if you don't have that association yeah and so it was kind of interesting because i remember just thinking like oh well this is funny these you know boys are being boys and and we all have these parts and, um, you know, and so it was, it was interesting to get introduced to that, especially so young and not being able to um, have the maturity level to like really process that information. And so you process it in the ways that you do. Um, and for me, it felt like a rite of passage. It felt like adults didn't want to talk about certain things that were secret. And um, but at the same time, I think we're smarter than parents think when we're young and so could tell that this was a really important part of life. It felt good. The things I was introduced to, um, you know, came with sensation and a mystery and an allure that I think kind of fueled me the rest of my life. Um, but continued this like um, battle within because again, I was raised in a very Mormon family. And so then I was going returning to my home and church and everything that I was experiencing, you know, basically meant that I was a sinner if I enjoyed that, if I thought about it, mm. if I sought it out, if I touched myself, if I, you know, um, imagined girls or whatever, you know, it was always, you know, came with a load of shame and mm. guilt and conflict because, you know, I feel like I was a very, you know, uh, natural you know, little boy who was curious about these things, but, you know, didn't know what to do with it. And so I just kind of developed this attitude that I was bad, that I was a bad kid. And that if I wanted to be good, that I just had to turn it off somehow. And that didn't happen. And so, so with that introduction in my life, I've, I've kind of traced this back to 
when I committed my offense, my offense was against my teenage daughter, my teenage stepdaughter, which I didn't recognize uh, or could foresee until I was in that situation. Um, I had gotten married a second time. I had three kids of my own. When I got married to my second wife, she brought with her um, a stepson and a stepdaughter. And I took them in as my own kids. I loved them. I really enjoyed being a father. I was uh, one of those fathers that was very exuberant and involved and playful and loving and nurturing and um, didn't recognize that, that I would ever be challenged with some type of attraction until my daughter hit puberty about nine years old. She was the tallest girl in her class. She developed rapidly and um, in our dynamic, like I was the one, the parent that um, the kids would come to for questions and answers, and they really confided in me more so than my wife, and this was the case. And so when she was going through these changes and different things, I was the one that was buying her tampons, and I was the one answering questions, and um, she would come to me with all those types of, of inquiry. And um, that in itself kind of created a space, a possibility, and different things. Um, and it wasn't until she matured that all of a sudden this, this thing was triggered in me where there was an attraction there. And I didn't know what to do with it and um, felt kind of like a freak, like this is a morbid thing. And um, I actually was scared about it. I talked to my wife about it and said, hey, like, I am fairly sure that this is something that happens in mixed families, you know, because mm-hmm. um, it wasn't for my own daughter. It was only for my stepdaughter. Um, and now having gone through therapy and talking to therapists there, they confirm like that's something that very much is prevalent in our world is that, you know, there's an attraction from somebody that is not of your same blood, you know, and it's just kind of a thing. Um, but I wasn't prepared for that. The other thing I wasn't prepared for is this trigger of this foundational thing of, um, I was introduced to sex through, um, older, either, you know, uh, friends or siblings or, you know, someone trusted close to you. Right. Right. And I didn't feel hurt. I didn't feel wounded. I didn't feel abused. And in fact, quite the contrary, I felt like it was, a rite of passage, that it was a beautiful thing, a gift of that somebody had given to me that was a true thing in life. Like, oh, well, I'm glad somebody told me th- about sex in a real sense because my parents and the people in the church and in society seem to want to hide this fact and make me feel bad about it. And so um, my perspective was a bit skewed and there was this temptation to be like oh I want I I appreciated when somebody did that for me so I'm going to do that for my children and for this person that wants to know and wants to inquire about this thing um but when you say I'm going to do that for my children like in your mind what did that look like well it meant not making them or teaching them shame around their body. It meant um, not, you know, like sticking my head in the sand and pretending like they weren't going to have those thoughts mm-hmm. and that they weren't going to be curious. Um, I didn't want them to feel bad if they masturbated. I didn't want them to, um, you know, turn their eyes away from a sex scene on television and pretend mm-hmm. like it's a bad thing. I wanted them to understand that, um, that sex is, is, is a very important part of life, that it's a beautiful part of life, that it's something that really brings us closer together and connects us, and it's part of being a healthy human being. Yeah. And so... Um, so you weren't proactively thinking, I want to initiate them the way these older no. people initiated me, but just I want to be there as a resource for them. Right. And, um, you know, answer any questions that they have. I want to create a, a safe space they feel like they can come to me with anything okay i just wanted to clarify that yeah and at the same time i was redefining my own sexuality after leaving the church at about 30 32 there was a part of me that was like man i've been lied to my whole life (laughs) and i've been feeling terrible about things i shouldn't feel bad about and they lied to me about drugs they lied to me about money you know like all these different relationships 
of things that were really important in life. Like I was now kind of back at point zero of like, what do I want to believe and how, what is um, a good place to come from for all these things. And so I did a lot of research and inquiry and, and there's a lot out there, you know, for you to define what it is for you. And so me and my wife were actually very uh, sexually active. Um, our children could hear us having sex. They would ask about it. You know what I mean? My um, wife was a pole dancer and um, oftentimes had women over in scanty clothes and were being sexy. And we were trying to support that. Um, and Safely exposing them in, you know, small doses. But right. it really sounds like it was also you let them lead the conversations. They would ask. It wasn't like... Hey, so let's, you know, talk about this right now, because if you heard the sound, you know, this is what it means. Like you weren't, you were letting them ask you the question. That's the biggest thing. Have little councils together as a family and be like, hey, what questions might you have? Yeah. What do you want? Because we, instead of having your friends answer these questions, we want you to be able to ask us. Yeah. And so, so we tried to go about it that way. Um, And so, but ultimately, um, what this led to was this relationship that felt caring it felt nurturing it felt educational and it it created a lot of opportunity for there to be boundaries crossed Mm. again when you have accessibility um to somebody like in a home as like a stepchild you share a bathroom you share resources, there's opportunities where you're snuggling and close and playful and all these different scenarios. And so accessibility in itself is one of the things that I think people overlook when it comes to sex offenses. Um, Just to throw out a few statistics, um, in my experience in prison, most of the men there were of these same dynamics. They were grandpas, they were stepdads, they were cousins, they were coaches, they were teachers, you know, they were in these relationships where you have the opportunity to develop a real connection and intimacy with somebody that goes from emotional to physical at stages. And I think that's a really important piece for all of us to understand Mm -hmm. and look at and also be wary of is to be able to look at that and say, hey, you know, if we're in these type of relationships or professions, or dynamics in our family, like we should be aware of the potential that's there. Um, Educate everyone on those different steps in communication and yeah, you'll talk a little bit more about, I'm guessing, where we can kind of put in place some of those preventative measures, but yeah. Yeah, and so just being in prison, there was a population of about 70% of sex offenders versus all other offenders that were in prison, which is huge, which is very telling of like, wow, you know, when before I went to prison, I had no idea that there Mm. were so many sex offenders out there. But then uh, in talking to people, a lot of sex offenses are things like peeing in public or exposing yourself or uh, Romeo and Juliet cases where a, a teenage couple, like uh, the boy will be 18 and the girl will be 16. And then as they age together, mm-hmm. then there's a big difference there. And um, they break up and the girl is upset or the parents are the upset. parents a lot of and times, And then yeah. as soon as it gets rolled over into the justice system, they take the control away from the people involved and they just prosecute. And so there are a lot of really um, surprising cases in which... People had been in prison for 10 years and things like, you know, some of those examples that were really shocking and just really felt um, inappropriate punishment for some of the things that they were experiencing. So as part of why I'm here, uh, part of me really feels like it's 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 important to talk about some of this stuff and, and help people realize like, hey, just because somebody has a sex offense, um, there are s- uh, an array and a gambit of things that can get people pulled into that. Mm-hmm. And then they carry that label for the rest of their yeah. lives. It's two words that's defining you and putting you in a pool of all other people that have, yeah, just like you said, that extreme where it's a violent, you know, predatory type offense versus a, um, you know, a closer, you know, let's say the peeing in public or something, you know, that, that mm-hmm. more minor type 
offense. So, but it's that two words that groups you guys together. Yeah. You see on, you know, you have those maps that people look at online, like, oh, we have a sex offender down the street. Everyone high alert, you know, don't let your kids play, you know, and not getting that chance to go talk to that person or so tell tell us make why we don't usually hear the sex offender side of the story um and why sex offenders aren't aren't generally willing to be interviewed well typically i think for one the media really plays on um fear like we all know and so when somebody has committed something like that, they kind of portray it in the worst light. They try mm-hmm. to, you know, make it seem like these people are freaks, that they've done this over their whole life, that they, you know, there's so much in the shadows that we don't know, you know, and they really play on our fear of each other. And um, the way the justice system works is as soon as you admit to anything, um, you're you know placed under these really harsh um, labels like for instance my exact charge is aggravated assault or aggravated sexual assault of a child um, and so just from that you get this idea that this was your brain violent goes to a very and, dark place yeah. yeah and abusive and this person was you know a child and you know all these things when in reality the aggravated um, part of that is simply because I was in a position of power of being her father and so Mm -hmm. immediately if you're a coach a teacher a grandpa a babysitter then it's aggravated because you're in a position of power which in a sense I very much agree with that you know that is um, any of those positions and with young people it's really easy to manipulate them it's really easy to um, develop um, a relationship in which you have the ability to kind of persuade them and pull them and introduce them to things and and it's hard for them at that level to really know how to respond they're not mature enough to really be at choice mm-hmm. um, they really can't give consent even though they say may say yes or they may be inquisitive or they may have all this stuff they're not really at a maturity level to where they can make that choice consciously because they just have they just don't know mm-hmm. and i can relate to that even as you know my experiences as a child like i was just curious this was kind of nice i'm getting attention and these are people i want to you know impress and feel cool and right. um, yeah. i'm getting affection you know and mm-hmm. so i'm getting props you know from mm-hmm. my friends because i've experienced things with a girl you know what i mean and yeah. so so it very much is one of those things and I really don't want this message to come across that we are um, trying to support or justify or, you know, like make it a right thing to do to commit a sex offense. That is not it at all. I think that it's really important to bring awareness around it so that we understand it. And the more that we understand anything in life, the more we can take better steps to to do it better, you know, and to to find where that healthy, appropriate balance is between um, protection and justice and mercy at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Having been having been through that experience, if you don't mind me asking, and being raised LDS and growing up LDS and that kind of thing, has your opinion changed about the bishop interviews with young children? and the types of questions that they ask. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I've been through those interviews myself, and um, that is was a very humiliating thing. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like, when we identify, again, as being um, broken or sinful or damned, that identity carries on to our daily lives. It's, it's, it depends on, it, it really dictates the outcomes of what we believe ourselves to be. And so if you hear that enough, um, then you simply come to the conclusion, like, I am broken. I am a freak. I am a sinner. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to never be in heaven with my family. And you kind of get to a point where you just say, well, fuck it. I'm already broken. I'm already going to hell. I'm already this, you know. And so it's very detrimental, uh, not to mention humiliating, right? Um, And... um, it, what I experienced was even like public humiliation, not being able to take the sacrament, you know, like being in a calling and being taken out of that calling in the church 
and everybody like looks at you and goes, Ooh, what did you do wrong? You know, where, how come you're not taking the sacrament, you know? And so, so all just reinforces this, um, lack of, uh, self-worthiness and mm. love and self-esteem, Huge. which Huge. kind of like continued to build on that. Do you think that uh, that puts the bishop in a situation, too, where he is in that position where he can build trust, and now he's asked to ask those questions, and that could lead him? Definitely. Down, I mean, obviously, we've heard the stories in the news. Oh, yeah, so. for sure. I was just kind of curious. What do you thought about that? Yeah, for sure. I think that's um, just like a therapist, right? Anybody that's um, working with people when they're in a very vulnerable state, when they're in a very um, kind of power play kind of position... Um, when they're talking about intimate things, they definitely have, again, the accessibility and um, the ability to to manipulate that position. And there's a temptation there, you know? And so, again, some of the awareness that needs to be brought about is um, the inevitable temptations that will occur in certain situations. And so, just, like, really being aware of that, you know, this is kind of a warning sign to anybody that may be listening to, to help everyone realize that no one is um, bulletproof and not immune. Mm, yeah, yeah, no one is immune to this. You know, no one ever goes, you know, thinking like, hey, yeah, I'm going to commit a sex offense when I'm 30 and go to prison or like no one ever believes that they'll do that. Um, but there's a lot of components that then play into situations. And I certainly Could didn't mean to single out the LDS faith. Sure. Just mm-hmm. FYI. So. Mike, could you explain why you didn't go and seek help or like therapy, excuse me, when you realized that you had this attraction to your stepdaughter and you talked to your wife about it, why didn't you take it outside your family? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, for one, I felt like a pedophile. I felt horrible. I felt like... um, a despicable person to even have that attraction come about like what's wrong with me like mm-hmm. this is supposed to be a loving relationship this is a you know this trust between me my wife my family my daughter like what am I doing you know and it, um, we all don't you know aren't psychologists and we really don't go into that or know very much about that we're just working from where we're from you know and it was a common man you know just uh, kind of wing in life um, and it really didn't feel safe to talk to my friends. It didn't feel safe to talk to my brother or the bishop or, you know, anybody because then they then look at you and go, oh, like, you're weird, you know, and what are you going to do and what don't we know about you, you know what I mean? Are my kids safe? And um, and so it's a very scary thing to, to do is to expose yourself as somebody that may be perceived as a freak. Mm. Um, and so, so I just to the next best thing which is talk to my wife and say hey like I I feel like we need to set some ground rules I feel, feel like we need to talk to our kids and say here's what we're gonna you know do and here's how we're gonna manage um and you know just kind of went from there yeah and I felt like personally that I had enough self-control that I was you know I could just be a loving father that I could just navigate you know mm-hmm. this situation just thought you could handle it yeah and it's not like i want to move her out of the house or i want to leave or you know what yeah. i mean you it's didn't like, want to disrupt your family right. you wanted to create a secure environment exactly and believed you could do that that makes total sense and yeah. then and every then parent had you considered talking to a therapist and were, were there any reasons that you felt that was unsafe for you yeah, it felt unsafe because, again, there's no confidentiality in our current structure. If you talk to a bishop, they're <laughs> required to report you. If you talk to a therapist, they're required to report you. And then what Even happens when they report you? Sorry. Sorry, Mariah. <laughs> yeah. Even just the thoughts. No, I mean, thinking about it's one thing. Yeah. But typically, you're not going to go talk to a therapist unless you think you need help. Right. And that's usually at the point where After you've, you've already acted oh, at I some see. point. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so, again, it's a very dangerous thing and yeah. you feel alone. You feel like you have to just kind of deal with it on your own. And and to be honest, I felt like I could. I felt like like, no, I'm a strong person. I'm disciplined. You know, like mm. this is these are people I love. I don't want to hurt anybody, you know, um, 
And, but I think one of the biggest mistakes I made and it's something that I think that all of us can um, really learn from is that we think that um, thoughts won't hurt anybody, right? And so mm-hmm. I was kind of having like these secret fantasies. I was kind of like playing out in my mind and I thought like thoughts don't hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I can yeah. entertain stuff. I can watch her. I can observe. I can indulge in my own secret type of thing. But that was probably one of the biggest mistakes that I think we all make in life is we think like, oh, well, that's not going to do anything. I'm not acting on it. But the truth is, is that when you think a thought long enough, it changes what you say, changes how you act. It changes slowly, just kind of curves how life will play out. And so as that started to happen, my conversations with my stepdaughter started to change and started to go a certain direction. And there was more openness, there was more inquisitiveness, and I was kind of um, offering those types of questionings. And so it turned into this thing where all of a sudden these situations were playing out before me. And even though I could think like, oh, well, I didn't make her do that. I didn't ask her to say that. I didn't, you know, like, honestly, Mm -hmm. she was kind of groomed into that. Mm -hmm. She was um, kind of primed to, to create the situation. And then once I was in the situation, I had already had um, these fantasies or whatever playing out to where it was more enticing. And so that is something to, I think, really keep in mind as as we all go throughout our days. Like, what am I thinking? What am I fantasizing about? What, am I, what, what thoughts or things am I cultivating that are then planting seeds, both in my words and my actions, you know? And so it's definitely something that I've learned um, through therapy and all this introspection to really watch for and really be careful of. Um, in therapy, we talk about thinking errors or blind spots. Yeah. And those are huge because a blind spot is something that you can't see yourself, right? They're, and you really can't see it. You're kind of oblivious to it until somebody comes along and says, hey, that's what Whoa, are you thinking? What are you doing? Yeah. yeah. How did you get there? You know, like, no, like here's <laughs> here's a different thought and maybe take this perspective check yeah Yeah. as well as thinking errors i mean there's so much evidence um that i was telling myself like for instance um like in different countries people get married very early and this is Mm -hmm. something that's been around for you know in tribal cultures and ever since the dawn of man and blah 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 you know what i mean so i'm not i'm not wrong in this thinking or you know uh, you know you kind of like go through all kinds of ways to like justify what you're doing and thinking and behaving and if you can convince yourself of anything right and so it's really important to kind of check yourself on thinking errors and how you're justifying and um, basically rationalizing your way into then committing a crime or Mm -hmm. crossing a boundary or you know doing something like that and that definitely was the case and is the most case for people who commit crimes or, or hurt people that they love. And so, so that's definitely a component for sure. Yeah. Do you mind telling us why you felt nervous to talk about this today? This is very something that um, I think for any sex offender is very difficult. For one, like I literally um, destroyed my own life. And not only my own life, but I um, hurt my children. They've had to go through this with me. I've been separated from them. They go to school, and anybody that knows me or knows about this, they experience that same shame. My family, my mother and father, and my brothers and sisters, they all kind of have felt the backlash of this, especially with it being something so shameful. So one day I went to lunch with my brother, and he started crying and he just expressed to me how often he has to defend me as a person and how difficult that is for him to be in that position um i've also you know been around other sex offenders we have group every week and Mm -hmm. there's horror stories about people showing up at their house with baseball bats beating the shit out of them or popping the tires on their car, or having to continually move from place to place, or getting fired from jobs. Um, are these are these people being um, being attacked by people they know or people they don't know? I think both. 
both you know people so. the sex offender registry is like a public forum that oh, anybody so can they're look just at. looking at the register and like you said there are both violent and nonviolent offenders yeah. on there and there's really no way there's there's no distinction made yeah right between those and your your offense was not violent is that well it's 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 hard to say when we talk about violence i think that there's emotional violence i think there's psychological violence mm -hmm. and there's physical violence and oftentimes we think of physical violence as worse and more traumatic but it's really hard to measure that um mm -hmm. it's it's different for every person like for instance my story you know as i go to therapy people say oh you were abused as a child and i think back and i think well i didn't feel abused yeah i i certainly caused confusion and shame in my life mm -hmm. and that definitely has carried out through my life and that has been traumatic and detrimental in 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 many ways but i didn't feel physically abused or hurt or you know all kinds of things i didn't even consider being that i might be abused ever yeah. until you brought it up mm -hmm. you know and so it's it's a really interesting thing that um that is different for everybody um i've had death threats even personally um when i went to prison um the prisoners there were actually really really violent towards sex offenders like you are the lowest of the totem pole i um was threatened to get stabbed i was persecuted for months um we had our food taken from us and we had our clothes stolen and I had all my belongings at one point. I had um, five men, you know, come to my cell as soon as I got there and demand paperwork. They want to see what you're there for. And it's really easy to spot a sex offender, to be honest. They're kind of gentle. Um, again, they're fathers and businessmen. And, you know, they don't have tattoos all over them generally. And they're not violent, puffed up, you know, yoked yeah. people, you know. And they just typically don't portray that. And so it's really easy for people to see, like, oh, you're not one of us so you mm. must be a sex offender so we're mm. going to check you you know and so they uh they basically told me i had that they were going to kill me and that i needed to get out of the section or check in or you know one of the most despicable things you can do in prison is to check in and basically push the button and call the cops to have them take you out and uh -huh. your reputation follows you everywhere in prison and so once you're exposed like you continue to get persecuted no matter where you go um, but all my belongings were stolen and interestingly enough, they used my, my pictures. I had pictures of my children mm. and they wanted the shoes I was wearing. So they sold me back my pictures of my kids so I could give them my shoes. Um, but other men were raped, you know, and beaten and killed. Some of them were thrown off the top tier in the prison and, you know, just killed. And some of these men um had committed offenses like for instance my celly um, one of the first experiences i had when i was in prison is i had this young uh celly who was gay and i woke up in the morning and there was this big tatted up guy from a gang and um, called him out as a sex offender and demanded that he give him his trays so basically he had to go without eating every day and the kid basically said no i'm not doing that and the guy's like, well, I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to beat the shit out of you every day. And I, at first I was like, no, nah, he's just, I'll talk. Like, whatever, this ain't going to happen. But no, it was real. He started beating the shit out of this kid. Mm -hmm. And um, his offense was, as a teenager, he was looking at teenage porn. Oh. And had been in prison for five years. Oh, my God. And was about to get out. And, um, you know, so, again, it's it's some of these offenses are things that you could totally understand but once you have that label like everybody just treats you like that and so so it's kind of scary not only do we have um the ramifications against just the populace and people in society but um the justice system themselves can come back and you know like i'm on parole so if um they didn't like my message then then i could be violated for some obscure reason go back to prison and I'm on a three to life. And so I'll be on parole for 10 years. And it's really easy to violate, you know. So so there's a lot of things that make this a very nerve-wracking thing and, um, you know, make it really scary to talk about. Not only is that, but 
for me personally, it's, it's like really coming out and being very vulnerable and admitting my faults and admitting this, this part of me, you know, like we all have our skeletons in the closet and there's this great big one. No one wants to talk about the things that they think about in their bedroom or behind the scenes or in their mind. But I think it's really important to acknowledge and talk about and just be real about. Yeah. So can we clear the air just a little bit? Because like we said, you know, this closed door that most people don't even want to peek behind. So they hear sex offender and they go to like the deepest, darkest thing. Um, You've talked about that this was your stepdaughter and she was quite young. Um, And so I think all of our minds are kind of jumping to some really bad places. Do you mind uh, going into any part of that story as much as you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just try to keep it general. Um, When the first things I I would say that happened that would cross the line were things that were kind of more difficult. Like, for instance, sharing a bathroom. Um, and she, if she needed a towel, she would just say, hey, dad, can you grab me a towel? And I'd go into the bathroom and she'd be naked. And she wasn't ashamed. You know, it was just that typical, like, father relationship. Mm-hmm. But um, as she matured um, to when she was about 12, um, that's like three years into puberty. She was, you know, a very beautiful, voluptuous young woman. And um, I found myself like in, you know, wanting to look at her. And so it became this thing where I had crossed that line of just, you know, like having it be a healthy relationship to where I wanted to see her naked. Mm. And um, eventually I played strip poker with her. And the thing that I think crossed the line the most is one day she was asking about what is a vibrator. Um, She saw it on a movie Mm -hmm. and... um, I decided that it'd be a good time to to show her my wife's vibrator and what that was and um, and then later found her using that in my bedroom and got into that situation um, and so when that happened I uh, I knew that I had crossed the line and I knew that I was affecting her um, and so I had talked to my wife she was on a trip and when she came home I talked to her about that and just said we need to talk to our daughter and we need to talk about what's appropriate and and what happened. And so we had that conversation and I think more than anything at the time she was just embarrassed and um, I think even kind of felt betrayed by me that I betrayed her trust. Um, and so it seemed like our, mo- our family moved past that and we were able to just be close again and um, kind of find that balance of what was appropriate and what wasn't. Um, and so just kind of went from there. And it wasn't until um, I had caught my wife cheating on me and uh, decided to break it off and go our separate ways that it came out. Um, and when it did, uh, my main concern was our stepdaughter. And so I, I let them know that I would take full accountability. I hired a lawyer and just let her know what I had done and that I just wanted to be treated fairly. Um, we set up a time to turn myself in and to go through the paperwork um, and pled guilty to a charge that, even with what I had done, carried a first-degree felony mm-hmm. of three to life. So... Um, the the only incidents that that happened were the one with the strip poker and then the one with the vibrator mm. and and those were the two things that um created the first degree felony charge yeah. okay yeah i well and i had touched her i had touched her briefly okay and so um so yes those were the main components um that really got me to where i am and where i went um and again, our uh, justice system is not support honesty. It doesn't support no. like you going and um, admitting you're wrong. In fact, it, it's the opposite. You actually want to have deniability and you want to, mm-hmm. you know, not say a single thing and you want to draw it out as long as I could. But it was really hard for me to justify that and putting my stepdaughter through that process yeah. of of calling her a liar in essence by denying Mm -hmm. it and putting her on the stand and dragging it out and um, that just seemed like a very 
um, selfish and terrible thing to do and to, you know, on top of what I had already done. Mm -hmm. And so, so I tried to do the most honorable thing I could and, um, tried to keep her out of the limelight, um, except whatever charges, you know, would be allowed and, um, never knew when I was going to come home. Yeah. I mean, you knew when you crossed the line, you went and reported yourself, you told your wife immediately, you know, Hey, this happened. I know it was wrong. It wasn't like, um, uh, you tried to, uh, continue to justify or seek it out, you know? Um, and I think that's where a lot of confusion and frustration for people who are on probably the outside of those experiences we don't see and we don't hear and we don't talk about. Um, so we would like to just make people, you know, demonize their actions completely instead of seeing some of these things and where can we put our power in, you know, where can we educate our children on, hey, maybe some of those conversations might be inappropriate with your teacher or something like that. Mm. And so I love that you are really telling this story for us because... Yeah, it gives people the opportunity to hear it and, and you're not trying to justify your actions and you're not trying to minimize what you did at all. Um, but the reason you're sharing it is to um, put that light of where who we can help and how. Right. So, Mike, tell us more about how the, the justice system um, worked. Like, I, I know you talked about other prisoners reaction to you and that sort of thing. But is there any sort of rehabilitation that happens through this system? There are attempts. I mean, there's, there's definitely good therapists and people that are trying to push the envelope as far as what's a more appropriate and healthy ways to help people rehabilitate. But to be honest, it's still very archaic. Um, to be honest, it's very deficient. There's like this massive waiting list for um, sex offender therapy. And so mm -hmm. you're waiting for years sometime to even get in. People are getting kicked out on a regular basis for simple things. Like, for instance, um, I was accused of violent object rape of my stepdaughter. And so if you don't um, admit to that in therapy, then they kick you out, even though that wasn't what happened. You know, um. and so there it's like this very loaded system that is almost designed to keep people there and have them fail again and again. Um, it's a very unrealistic um, approach to sexuality. You know, we yeah. were told not that we couldn't um, masturbate, that we couldn't have pictures of women in our cells. We were told that we couldn't even if we had a wife or a girlfriend on the phone that we couldn't talk about sex or right, talk about anything sexual um and so it was like this shaming around the whole idea and i kept thinking Stick to myself, our head in the sand further yeah mm -hmm. i kept thinking to myself and i'd even raise my hand and ask my therapist like hey aren't we supposed to be learning to be healthy Shouldn't we be having healthy fantasies shouldn't we be having healthy conversations with our wives and it's not a switch we can flip yeah, like shouldn't we be nurturing what's yeah. healthy and balanced and appropriate, you know? And if we're not being led to do that, then what we're really doing is you're starving us of something that may cause another offense, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's this really kind of backwards thing that even some of the therapists would admit they didn't agree with. And so, so it's been really interesting. It's been really interesting. So how... I mean, what what would it take for those laws to be changed? What would that process look like? Well, for one, you can imagine if a politician ran and was <laughs> sex offender friendly, right? <laughs> what, if they'd ever make it into office. Most of the time they're, they're put into office by making things harder and, and offering things that are more restrictive and more mm -hmm. punishment, you know, truly. Um, but I think the people that vote them in are us, you know, society. I think it's really important for people to see people as people and allow for there to be a process of redemption and allow for there to be a process of help and nurturing. Help. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a big one. The Another statistic is that um, most people believe that sex offenders will reoffend, that they have one of the highest recidivism rates, and that's not true. There's actually a 3% recidivism rate 
for sex offenders is actually the lowest out of all crimes wow. committed. It's actually I the didn't lowest. Know. Yeah. And especially with therapy, then it's one of the lowest. And so, um, and again, it's not to say that there aren't predators. There really are. Yeah. You know, um, and it's not to say that there aren't people with really serious mental illness. You know, I've lived with them and I've talked with them and I've heard their stories as well. But even they need help. You know, they need to be guided and they need to be nurtured. And they need to be um, kind of shown a different way. And that takes compassion and caring. Um, but being punished, and being mm -hmm. isolated and not ever having an outlet, not being taught what's healthy, um, just compiles a problem and increases the, the chance that they will, you know, uh, re-offend. Yeah. And so it's just really, really important and part of why we're having this conversation. Hearing your story makes me wonder why we are willing to look at alcoholism as a disease and sort of separate it from the person that's committing sometimes violent offenses when they're mm -hmm. drunk, but not willing to look at, you know, sexual offenders as, you know, diseased in the same way and needing therapeutic help and, you know, that, that they're able to go into recovery and live normal, healthy, happy lives. Like, mm -hmm. why, why can't we give that kind of support? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been really interesting to come out of prison and be on parole and realize that on the other side of things, it's really hard to have a healthy, happy life. Mm -hmm. For one, um, employment is really hard to get if you have a sex offense. Mm -hmm. Most people don't hire you. I mean, felons themselves have a challenge, but when you're a sex offender, it's, it's even more loaded. Um, finding housing is really hard. Um, dating is really hard. Um, I recently got on some dating sites and actually got banned from all of them. And so wow. you're restricted from going to public places. Do you know um, how that came about? How the bans came about? <coughs> I was just kind of curious. Um, from the dating site? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they didn't ask you. No. Um, later, it said something like a violation of terms and policies. And when I went back and read, like they actually have in their terms and policies, if you have committed a sex offense, you can't use the service. Wow. Oh. And so there must be a network or something where they inform each other. Check. Yeah. And so, um, but again, like, you know, uh, once you get out, like you have no community. Um, it's really hard to go and meet people. Um, you can't be anywhere around people who are 18 and under, which like eliminates you from so many places. I also have an alcohol class. So I can't go to bars. Um, and so it's, you're again, you're almost like this isolated Socially, place yeah. where mm -hmm. you can't hope to meet a partner unless it's under some fluke, you know what I mean? Thing. And even if you do meet somebody, are they going to understand that you went to prison for a sex offense? And well, even just being intimate again, and yeah. what that looks like and how to rebuild, you know, that healthy intimacy, because if you're completely shunned from it during your quote unquote rehabilitation time, you know, in prison, you know, what, what was that process for you? I mean, I'm sure that shame and things were scary. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Luckily I had a great partner that, um, she was with me my whole, you know, time during prison. And when I got out, so we just moved slowly, you know, but the whole time I was, I was really one of those people that was like, no, like, I know that sex isn't wrong. I know I shouldn't develop this like stigmata against it. I shouldn't be at war with my body. And so I would personally would try to do work around that in myself and just say, no, like, I just need to be healthy and appropriate and just know where things went awry. And so, but yeah, it definitely has uh, an impact you know, and things you talk about with your, your therapist and mm -hmm. in group. And it's a very real thing. Like guys come out and experience ED for the first time ever and um, are afraid to be intimate. Um, yeah. Even when you are, you're, you feel like you have to be incredibly careful with your partners and, and you can't um, uh, express yourself in a carnal way or, you know, like any mm -hmm. of these things. And so it's like definitely plays a part to where, for now, I'm very, very careful with the women I date, and I'm really um, big on consent and communication, and I make sure that they know like about my offense, so that they are always at choice and just feel, you know, totally in the know. Yeah. But 
but it's always very risky, you know, and there's this, this fear of rejection and, um, you know, all kinds of things. And so definitely. Constantly. Um, so when you say, you know, you disclose your offense to people you're dating, how might that look for, I mean, maybe what are some approaches that you've tried that have worked better than others? I don't know. So if anyone does have, even if it's not a sex offense, but trying to bring up some things that are hard to bring up, but that they should be bringing up with a partner early on. Hmm. I don't know. What did that look like? Yeah. Well, I feel like it's always important for a person to even experience me as a person. I think that you can feel into a person just by having conversations and talking about life and getting their perspectives. And so once I feel like a person um, can feel into me and I'll talk about like real stuff and just be really vulnerable and talk about what it feels like to even express that and what I'm afraid of. And, um, and interestingly enough, like people are really respond to being vulnerable. They mm-hmm. really respond to, um, being honest, Honesty you know? And huge. so when you talk about something like that, that, you know, that no, no one wants anybody to mm-hmm. hear, it almost like helps them to trust you more. You know, and so, so that's been my experience. I haven't had a single person reject me or be like, oh my God, like you're freaking and I'm out of here. You know, most people are actually really compassionate and really understand, or they ask more questions that help them clarify what it was and, you know, different things like that. And I've just gotten to a point where I'm really open to share and I'm, you know, just like this podcast, I really want um, to help change people's mind around at least my experience yeah. and, um, and just help people see that there's so much that, you know, more that we need to take into consideration with people. Lots of different levels that we can approach this as, you know, not only prevention, but rehabilitation and, um, you know, more understanding. But the first thing is just being willing to hear stories. Mm-hmm. So I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. So then we can see it in a different light. Um, understand where some of those um, boundaries, you know, where that line is and what protections we can put up for yeah. for not only the adults that are in those positions, but, you know, other vulnerable populations that are in those positions. You know, um, Brady put up about the bishop interview so Mm. in the lds church for any listeners who aren't familiar with this they used to have the youth so i think it was what 12 11 8 even 8 before they got baptized would go into a room alone with their bishop so this is kind of just a clergyman type position and they would ask them like do you feel worthy and big part of the lds church is you're abstaining for any from any like sexual anything honestly um even thoughts they kind of hold against you as well and so they finally judged that that was quite inappropriate for bishops to Did they? yeah they oh. don't do that anymore that's good to hear congratulations yeah. on that there Elias was the, definitely times that bishops heard and asked highly inappropriate things for me when i'm you know a 14 year old sitting there alone um disclosing things that you know were it's not okay for someone to ask those things kind of thing. Mm. But yes, we're slowly getting there. But again, people sharing their stories is the only way we're going to get there. Yeah. So I really, really appreciate that. And having those conversations, you know, the episode that dropped the week before, um, this one, we talk about that sex talk with children and how to kind of navigate those worlds. And it's not easy, but even part of that is what's appropriate from other people too. Um, you know, and what, who you can come to and what you can say right. to. Cause I think you just said you felt like that. You felt like you were that trusted person. She could come to and ask questions and, you know, unfortunately it just didn't, um, yeah, I yeah. don't know where I was going with that <laughs> thought, but yeah. Well, one thing that I think is really important. And as I've seen, as I looked around in prison and seen just hundreds and hundreds of, of men, separated from their families, their mothers and uh, children now not having a supporter in the family mm. and um, just seeing the the massive ripple effect that like a sex offense has on both the victims, families, the community, like it is this, you know, this, this thing that 
again, really needs to be addressed and can be addressed in a better way. It makes me wonder why we don't have billboards on the side of the road that say like, you know, statistics of like 80% of all sex offenses are people that you love and know and are close to you. Mm -hmm. So be careful, you know what I mean? Or or just some statistics that help bring people's awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, Sex education to young people where they realize that they have um, the ability to kind of entice older people and that that older people aren't immune or, you know, like aren't going to not react, that they have their own desires and passions and drives as well. And it makes it really hard to to resist those types of things and how to set boundaries and how to say no and how to communicate clearly and what are proper channels and... um, Another big piece, I think, is about confidentiality. Like, why don't we have hotlines or places that people can go to really talk about any attraction they might be having or any action that they have taken um, and where to go next or how to get help or who to, who to talk to so that they can um, um, talk about being violated or ha- being abused, but not, you know, most, uh, I can't say most, but a lot of people really don't want their stepdad to go to prison for life or their grandpa or their coach you know for something that they maybe don't feel violated from but they just want to stop or they just want to be able to cope with it in their own way and that's not the case and so so many of these things are out of their hands once it becomes public and then this whole like justice looks different for everyone yeah exactly you know not not prison time served isn't always going to be whatever whatever crime it looks like you know mm-hmm. um i definitely think that should come into account as well um is there anything you want our listeners to like walk away from if you had to sum it up in like one sentence i know you did a really good job <laughs> mm-hmm. i think just for anybody that may be listening i think it's really important to again realize that nobody's immune to not only a sex offense but just any crime you know that we find ourselves in stressful situations in relationships that are violent or you know like so much pressure um through alcohol drugs you know like whatever components play a piece in how we may hurt somebody Mm -hmm. um so just to be really mindful of that be really careful you know and um you know just hearing from somebody who you know was a businessman had a beautiful family uh you know was had a high station in in our society and community to have committed something like this i just want to you know remove the stumbling stone for other people and hopefully help them to navigate their lives in a more mindful way in a compassionate way and also to remember that no matter what label you may see as a person, a murderer, an addict, a sex offender, um, or anyone of any label that just remember those are people and that we all have the right to thrive and to be happy and to create life, you know, and that we all, if there's no redemption for any one of us, then we're all in trouble. And so Mm -hmm. how do we get back to that? And so we need to be able to offer that to people and to our neighbors and family and so hopefully we can get there someday. Thank you Thank so you. much. Yeah. It's, <laughs> before we, really before we wrap up, is there anything, is there any kind of a resource that you found to help you in that process of coming back to society? Or, or was there anything you found after the fact that maybe could have prevented the whole situation? Actually, there really isn't. Just okay. therapists. You know, I really work with some great therapists. And um, it's been really helpful to to talk to people that are kind of involved with um, sexual healing and trauma and realize like, oh, my God, like I'm not that different. You know, as I talk about my story, there's so many people that come forward and say, I've experienced that same thing. I've actually like had the situation or I was abused when I was a kid or I was this or this or this. And it's like so prevalent that it's helped me to realize like, oh, wow, like I just needed to um have some outlet and be able to talk to somebody about this and you know and so we're all kind of there you know and so it's been really helpful to just like be real with people yeah i think everybody's family probably has been touched some way or another by 
mm-hmm. this sort of thing. Sorry yeah. for stepping on you guys right there. The reason I asked was I <clears throat> tried looking a couple of times online to see if there was some kind of preventative resource, resource or uh, as soon as those care treatment. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. what you were you couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything. Right, and yeah. and that's why we wanted to do this episode because that needs to change. Yeah, and maybe it's time for somebody to write a bestseller to bring awareness or you know (laughs) um but yeah that's that's not right thank you so much for being here today i know it was not easy for you and i really appreciate you being so vulnerable yeah and thank you and um also thank you to the listener Uh, hopefully you can um hopefully not see this as like justifying or trying to promote but um, hopefully you can see the direction that we're trying to take this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, if you have any questions for our guest or any comments or want to share your story, um, you can always reach us at saltysexcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, and that's at saltysexcast. Mm-hmm. And our Patreon account is now up and running, so please become part of our community at um, patreon.com forward slash salty sex cast. Um, and we appreciate you sticking it through to the end today, yeah. guys. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Stay sexy and salty. Bye. Bye. Yeah. And what's puberty? Puberty? Well, puberty's a lot of things. Here's the piece. When you hear about it first, it sounds very strange. Oh, if it really bothers you, you should see a doctor. Then at puberty, certain glands begin to work, and our bodies begin to change. It enlarges the penis itself. And there's a center opening between those two, which is called the vagina. The sex education you wish you had in high school. Maybe a diagram will help.